Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Sebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Rap. I am Bela Sebrow. Thank you to Vin News for hosting our show. We cannot keep our heads in the sand anymore, even if it's a controversial issue that we're dealing with. And we therefore need to address those issues that are at hand and bring them to the forefront. When there are concerns that go against the typical way of lifestyle that happen in the United States, it is not just accepted, but celebrated. But when such ways happen in Israel, it is cause for shock. However, it usually takes a while for it to reach Israel. In fact, it is said that everything that happens in the United States comes to Israel 20 years later. And yet, in a Herzli Elementary School, a child that was born a male is now known as a girl. The subject of transgender children has reached Israel, and people are shocked, to say the least. Elat Zadikov, former deputy mayor of Herzliya, is outraged and called it insane. Our guest today covered the story in the Jerusalem Post. Tamar Uriel Biri is the managing editor of the Jerusalem Post's website, jpost.com. Her coverage focuses on welfare news in Israel. She has a bachelor's degree in, in English literature, history, and philosophy from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Tamar, welcome to The Definitive Rap. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Bela. All the way from Israel. All the way here. <laughs> My first question is, what do we know about this child's parents? We know that the child is a twin, but why would the parents do this? I, I read your article where the mother stated that the child who was born male was interested in girls' toys and clothing, Barbies and princesses. But, but so what? There are plenty of little boys that are intrigued by girly things, and the parents don't go ahead and change its gender. Also, how is it that a school in Israel is permitting this, what, what is known as an outrage amongst other parents? The parents of students are furious, and I guess they have good reason to be. So, um, first of all, like you said, the child that we're talking about is a twin. Um, she's being spoken of as N. Obviously, we're not going to reveal a child's name. Yeah, of course. Um, and she's eight years old, as is her brother S. And uh, it's not just an interest in girls' toys, girls' interests, and kind of the rejection of boys' toys and such. It's something beyond that. Something in her inherent understanding of herself being is female. This is evident not only in the fact that she likes boyish, girlish things, sorry, and, you know, if that weren't the case, then it would just be a boy who likes girly things, you know, it's beyond that. When she was four years old without knowing anything about transgender culture, about LGBTQ, about drag queens, about anything like that at all, she already expressed her interest in being called a girl. She told her parents, I want to be known as a boy girl, you know, and she had no, I like, you understand this is something inherent to her. This isn't something taught from outside. Her parents haven't taught her any of this. That being said, how do her parents permit it? You ask, I think that it's not the action of the parents actively when she was, you know, six years old, she said, I'm a girl. They said, 
they tried to reason with her saying like, you're still quite young. You don't really know. And she said, no, I know who I am. I'm a girl. Now, of course, there is the argument to be said that this is nevertheless a child. You know, she's going to change, learn, develop, which is why absolutely no medical decisions were being made by the parents. That is their argumentation. No change in hormonal levels, no kind of medical change was being made. No surgery is being underwent. The only only change is that she wants to be called a girl. Now, this is something that by, you know, scientists worldwide, psychologists worldwide, research shows that addressing a child at such a young age by their preferred gender pronouns improves their mental state and their mental health significantly. And showing them that gender is something that is not sex and creating that separation allows for movement between them in a healthy mental way for people who just don't know where they lie. And that's something inherent to them. That's not something being taught, which again is very clear by the entire uh, discussion when she was four years old. Now, how did the school permit this? I'll explain why this was a bit of a complicated situation. Normally in this kind of situation, which happens by the way, all the time, all around the world, including in Israel, um, the parents will kind of slowly go through this process with a the child. They'll start sending the child to a therapist, a psychologist, special treatment to kind of talk through it and see like, is th- how deeply ingrained is this? How serious is this? And if this is understood to be by professionals in the, in the subject to be indeed a serious situation, that's when they'll take it to the next step. That next step is coming to the school, coming to the school principal, the guidance counselor. And oftentimes in Israel, there's a external psychologist that works with each school from the municipality. And they'll come together, have several meetings to kind of discuss what's being done, what's being said, and what's the change in narrative, because that's what all it is. There's no medical change. Like I said, the only change is in the way that this child is being addressed. And they will come together on a formulated plan. They will then speak to the parents and get everybody's okay on it, that they feel comfortable with their child being in this kind of narrative, this kind of discussion. And from that point on, it can be discussed in an educational and accepting manner. What went wrong here seemingly, and again, I'm saying this just from, you know, several interviews that I did for the article that you were discussing. And, you know, If things have come up since then, I'm not aware. But the issue that was at hand from interviewing Elad Zadikov and the parents was as follows. The parents came to the school and the specific teachers they spoke to were the direct homeroom teacher of the child who knows the other children in the classroom and knows the parents to the school guidance counselor, to the aforementioned uh, psychologist from the municipality and to a special needs teacher who works at the school. They devised a plan and all the teachers told uh, N's parents, um, all right, now all we need is the uh, principal's approval. The second that we have that, we will let you know and we will send out a letter to parents. That letter will explain this change in narrative and will create a forum during which any parents who are concerned can formulate their complaints and we can make changes to the plan or perhaps exclude certain children, right? Later, maybe a couple days later, the parents get a message from the school saying, we're ready to send that letter. Of course, in the parents' understanding, that means, cool, we have the principals okay. The principal at the time was away because she was sick, like something really minor, right? 
So of course they understand, okay, this has been approved. Fantastic. The letter goes out and indeed it says we're having a zoom meeting tonight. Let's gather there can, I mean, there's plenty of argument to be made one, you know, like notifying in the morning and saying the calls in the evening isn't enough notice. Understandable. Fine. Um, but as it turns out and, you know, I can't point my finger at a specific place who made the mistake. None of this was approved by the principal. At least that's what the principal claimed later. Um, so there was this meeting. There was this Zoom call. Um, no parents seemed to complain about it at the Zoom call. Later on, it's understood from speaking with Tzadikov that certain parents, um, you know, turned to their forums that are less interested in having an open conversation about transgender children in the classroom and they complained kind of you know within this echo chamber which all of us are in so the zoom call with the parents turned into an echo chamber of support while the uh, opposition was an echo chamber of you know opposing such a decision and there was no real conversation had um so so you know, you can call this a misunderstanding, you can call this a miscommunication, but altogether, it was just seemingly strange, bad management. Then um, Sadikov took to social media after these complaints reached his ears um, and made a bunch of uh, commentary on the people involved in the decision. And, um, you know, I mean, it's understandable to have some kind of opposition. There's a lot of argument to be had on the subject. Uh, he did take to social media and made claims that were later on proven to be false. Um, he did not contract them. Uh, he retract them, sorry. He did later while speaking with me claim that he didn't remember speaking that way. There are screenshots. The tweet is still up. So we know for a fact that this was true. Altogether, seemingly just a miscommunication with bad management on either side. The transgender issue in general is one where there are professionals who believe that it is a facade disguising a mental health struggle or a deeper issue. Um, Has not anyone addressed the issue that this child might be struggling with something in the home? So um, what is your take on this or and also what you know? So I'll start with what I know and then I'll go on to my interpretation. So first of all, what I know is that um, the second N expressed a desire to be addressed as a girl. Um, That's when she started going to multiple therapists, including a kind of general psychologist and also a gender specialist whose specific uh, focus in her studies was on this realm, on transgender issues, on LGBTQ issues. Um, And also that kind of gray area of we're still talking about a child here so there was all the time a kind of concern for her um health and that always came first um when before she had come out in school she had come out in other places um to her family she already like decisively said I'm wearing dresses at home please let me wear dresses at home parents said fine uh when they when she would go to her grandparents houses and so on and so forth um so I completely lost my train of thought. Give me a sec. (laughs) Right. So she would wear dresses at home. And then she eventually said, I need to do this at school. And the reasoning behind that was that she simply said, every morning I wake up and I'm upset that I have to go to school pretending to be somebody else. Because that's how she feels. Imagine like somebody like me, you know, being forced to wear a baseball cap and like a, you know, jersey and being called a boy. You know, that that's how she felt. 
leave it up for interpretation what that represents about her mental health fine um and evidentially if we set aside the bad management of the transition, the moment she started coming to school, which there was only like a week left of school when she came out, but that last week of school, she felt better than ever before. She didn't cry before school anymore. She had play dates and she kind of came into her own. If that represents something about something in the household, it wasn't evidence. I mean, take it from, if now we're talking about my personal interpretation of it, I met her, I met her brother, I met her parents the family dynamic to like any unprofessional eyes seemed perfectly healthy. And she seemed like she felt very much herself and comfortable in her own skin as a girl who loved playing with a hairbrush and putting clips on and wearing her little uh, skorts, right? (laughs) Skirt with shorts. So I don't see this as something representing any kind of underlying, you know, household welfare issue. Um, when I spoke to Tatikov, he did bring up the issue of transgender mental health issues. And he said that, um, you know, there's a high percentage of mental health issues in the transgender community. He um, created a connection between the transition and this, these mental health issues um, in reality, uh, something that's kind of statistically broken down in studies that do prove that transgender youth in particular have lower levels of, you know, mental health, higher, you know, levels of suicide rates and so on and so forth. Um, the connection being made uh, consistently is that this depressive state is because of uh, gender identity repression, which is that they identify as their biological sex, male identify as boy, female identify as girl, when that's not how they actually feel. And, you know, something like their family or their friends are forcing them to, quote unquote, stay in the closet, or they're being bullied for these issues. Um, And those are the top reasonings that, you know, scientists who are professionals in this field are giving to these mental health issues. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily draw that conclusion that, you know, A, the child is being forced into something that she doesn't want, or B, that, um, you know, this is actually a reflection of some kind of mental health crisis, because statistics say otherwise. You mentioned that um, this child has play dates. Yeah. Play dates from her, uh, from school, the parents are accepting, because I've read that there is tremendous outrage in the school so so the tremendous outrage is kind of broken up there are those who oppose there are those who are supportive and there are those who you know like don't really see it as something that's affecting their child or see it as any kind of attack and say like she's a girl she's a girl she's you know if it's a boy it's a boy anyway so um she's since coming out of the there's no pushback there's i mean i mean there welcoming her with according to what you're saying they're welcoming her with open arms into their homes the birthday parties so if we're talking about the playdates she when i spoke to her had had three playdates since coming out with uh kids from her class two girls and a boy uh on separate occasions and on top of that they threw like a little class picnic when uh you know when israeli schools went on strike a couple weeks back they had like a little school picnic and she got to play with everyone and at the time, at least her parents didn't notice any pushback um, and nothing had reached directly their ears until that Sadikov had spoken up both online and later on in the municipal meeting on the subject. Um, but the parents who 
seemingly opposed to the issue weren't vocal towards them, their family, and towards, you know, and in that Zoom call that was organized, um, supposedly because of the last minuteness of it. But they were vocal. They were vocal about it. Maybe not on the Zoom call, but they were vocal about it. I mean, that's that's what I read. They didn't reach out to the parents directly, if that's what you're asking. The parents had not been contacted by other parents in the classroom with any kind of opposition to it. And if they had been there, they say that like there would have been a conversation to be had, but nothing had come to theirs. And to be honest, it's understandable. If you were in a position where you oppose something like this, you know, you you feel uncomfortable coming to the parents and saying, because it feels like something that you're disagreeing with them on a foundational Uh, level. That's not an easy position for parents to to, to be in. Right. Um, So they go, but but then again, doing something different is going to be different than what, you know, the way, the way, right. It's, it's, it's like, you know, earlier. It's like if, you know, you take your kid to kindergarten and you see a parent, uh, I don't know, like hitting their kid. I, I'm not comparing transgender oh, children I, to I hitting their a, kid. A parent abusing a child, you know. Maybe, yeah, maybe I, I'm over exaggerating here. And I'm definitely not to clarify making right. any comparison between child abuse and transgender rights. Those are completely different things. But I'm saying if you oppose something unilaterally, even so, it's hard to bring up in conversation. You get uncomfortable. Yeah. I would like to talk to you a little bit more about this child. Um, I understand, and you said that you met with the, uh, the child, the twin sibling, and the parents in the process of writing this article. Uh, please tell us about that. I know you mentioned that she was uh, playing with her hairbrush and, and uh, being all girly, but what was it like in the home, and, and how, was she, how was this child interacting with um, the twin sibling? So, I mean, they had a totally normal sister-brother relationship. What, what happened was that when I came at first, I spoke to the parents and hung out with their adorable dog um, and just got to hear the story from their perspective of the different, you know, conversations they had to have in order to support their daughter. Um, and then like an hour or so later, the kids came home from summer camp and they came back as you could imagine any twin boy and girl, right? They came back screaming, running around, begging their parents for snacks and playing with a dog and being extremely embarrassed that there's a stranger in their home. (laughs) And um, I mean, yeah, there there wasn't anything in particular that I noticed to be an oddity Um, after, I mean, you know, I got to know them. I got to talk to them a little bit. You know, I asked and like, what's it like uh, at summer camp now? And she said, it's super fun. And then we, you know, she told me that she likes watching uh, YouTube tutorials of uh, different hairstyles. And she started playing with her mom's hair. And then I spoke to S a bit. And if you read my article, you know that I I am obsessed with this child. He is (laughs) remarkable. He immediately said, do you want to see my investments? And I'm looking at him in shock. You're eight years old. And he takes me to his little closet and cabinet and pulls out a bunch of different little bars of silver and a collection of uh, rare Pokemon cards. So overall, like completely adorable children. Now, the twin uh, thus far knew that um, he has a brother because the twin is, is a boy. Mm. So how did they suddenly explain to this to the child that your twin is now a girl? So um, first of all, it was a transition, right? It was a very, very, very long process of like 
four-year-old saying I'm a boy girl and then at six years old saying like can I try on dresses and then putting on little shows while wearing a dress at home so it was something very very smooth and and something like a couple months ago it became evident and he kind of understood like I have a sister not a brother and he told me while I was talking that I don't think I put in the article I asked like what do you do if people in class ask you about n have you been asked about n and s said um yeah a few of them asked like so wait so do you have a sister or brother and S simply said like I I have a sister and to him it was very simple you know he didn't really understand that there's any kind of conflict around because in a child's eyes this is naive when they told the children in the classroom that N is a has the brain of a girl in the body of a boy um the, the the questions were equally naive they they applied like gender stereotypes to her so they said so does she is she is she a girl because she likes playing with hula hoops or doing cartwheels you know so that same naivety was evident in s where he simply said i have a sister what if the child decides in a year or two from now because children change change their minds what if the child decides um all right i want to go back to being a boy great i i'm i'm i i asked the parents that as well and they said sure whatever she feels comfortable with right now she feels comfortable being addressed uh, with she her pronouns being addressed as a girl and if one day that changes that's absolutely fine detransitioning is always connected again to this sort of asexual nature that doesn't really exist when it comes to transgender children and b to biology to surgery to you know th- those things don't exist when it comes to this kind of situation because n hasn't undergone any kind of operation if n decided one day no i'm a boy again then n would be a boy and that would be the end of it Tamar, you know, you write about issues of welfare. So um, on a different topic that made mm. shocking headlines in Israel, a 24-year-old Sapir Nahum went missing and her ex-boyfriend, uh, while Robin Halaya, was immediately brought in as the main suspect. Mm. You covered that story and uh, wrote that the police characterized him as the most manipulative suspect they'd ever interrogated. What was it about this murder and the suspect that brought such media attention? Well, that's a great question. It was actually an insane story. I'll be honest with you. I, if you ask me as a, uh, you know, avid uh, Law and Order SVU and Criminal Minds watcher, I think that the drama of the situation, which is not common in Israeli criminal situations because Israel's security systems are just, you know, top notch. We have people coming worldwide to learn about our security system. I think that something about the drama of this situation, that it was really a mystery which we found out in the end was no mystery at all, but fair. it felt like it at the time. I think that's definitely what attracted the attention. Also, the fact that, you know, a 24-year-old woman went missing and she was gone for 11 days. It took 11 days to find her, her body, which in the end ha- had been very near where she had last been seen, right? It had been in the middle of this, like, shrubbery, like, a few kilometers away from the street where she had last been seen. So. I think that's what definitely attracted the attention. Like you said, the police called him the most manipulative man we have ever interrogated. That was an insane situation as well, in which he, um, during the interrogation, just refused to cooperate in any way. You know, 
in past police operations on the subject, you see them unequivocally denying their kind of behavioral patterns that either are under the guise of innocence or are, you know, just kind of clearly covering up. But he just completely kept, in Hebrew you say, like a hard head. So it, it kind of means like he he wasn't letting anything kind of pass through. I think that, you know, if I'm interpreting like the police um, commentary, they, they saw a sociopath sitting in front of them and they didn't know how to communicate with somebody like that. And he would tell them, you don't have anything. Come back to me when you have something. He almost taunted the police with the crime that he ended up being proven to committed or at least allegedly committed because he was indicted at the time. Um, yeah. So, you know, he taunted the police. And when he found out that the body was found in his jail cell, he started screaming. It was kind of like a, you know, a shattering of the facade, which is very interesting. I guess to um, fool people into assuming that he's not guilty. I don't know if it's into fooling people that he's not guilty so much as uh, it was described more as an angry scream than an anguished scream. I think that he was upset because he knew that the evidence would point to him. I mean, Israeli police have dealt with sociopaths before. No uh, doubt. <laughs> but what specifically about this case intrigued them? I don't know if it's intrigued them. They kind of took the normal processes. I think the people who are intrigued was more the public eye who aren't usually focusing on these kinds of stories. A lot of the time, um, these stories are applicable to the Arab sector. In this case, this was a Jewish woman and, uh, you know, her ex. So I think that might have had something to do with it. On top of that, you know, like I said, a situation shrouded in mystery. The police kind of handled it in their standard way. Um, there was a lot of criticism facing the police, though, over the fact that they kind of released and rearrested, released and rearrested, and then extended his detention and then extended, you know, it was like a very iffy, rocky situation in which when the public eye thought, you know, it's so obvious, um, the police were like, we don't have sufficient evidence to legally hold this man at the moment. So it kind of created also this imbalance that mm -hmm. I think also attracted the public eye. Right. And what do we know about their relationship pr prior to the murder? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I'll be honest with you. Um, from the last footage seen with them, it seems like, um, you know, the breakup had not gone too well. He, they had two children together. And I believe that the second child he didn't recognize as his own child. So there was definitely, you know, a, a conflict there. It might point to domestic abuse, but no evidence has been published as of yet to definitively say so. Right. And now on a political note, mm -hmm. um, what do you think about Benny Gantz and Gideon Sa'ar running together in the election? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, we've seen a lot of these merger parties throughout the past, you know, three and something years of election after election after election. And I, I don't see it, you know, bringing to fruition some kind of amazing new movement in the Israeli government. In reality, when it comes to, you know, Gantz voters and SAR voters, we're talking about similar groupings, right? SAR voters are people who believe in essence in the different messages that the Likud had kind of supported, but were 
pushing kind of against Netanyahu because of his investigation over fraud, bribery, breach of trust. Um, so they went to a different party, which in essence, the foundations politically are very, very similar to the Likud, but the essence of it is we're not Netanyahu. Then we look at Gantz, who he started originally his party, um, you know, back when he announced his entrance into politics as uh, they had like a little song, a little jingle that went like, there's no more left. There's only rights that and he, like that was kind of his message throughout is just we're a unified Israel. So politically, this might be a bit of a like skip step for Gantz to the right, which would be interesting to see how that affects his policies. Um, I, I say half jokingly, you know, the devil works hard, but Gantz works harder. If you're tracking his locations right now across a globe, uh, you can just draw lines. Boom, 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 boom. Gantz jumping all across the world. So he, I think his intentions, if you're right, if you're left, have never been questioned. The real question is, is such a, you know, united party going to make a dent in it? Because people altogether are definitely not satisfied with Tsar. Um, And... Gantz supporters are very much on the fence. So, you know, it's a shakeup. I think that the main definer of how this next election is going to go is in actions that have not yet been taken by any party. So we're only going to be able to know definitively when, you know, something major happens, like, uh, you know, Ayala Chiquet taking a step forward or maybe taking a step away from Bennett or something like that. Um, And that's when we're really going to know, like, which way the election is leaning until now all of the polls are on the fence are saying nobody's going to be able to form a government okay all right remains to be seen (laughs) yeah we'll see yes yes tamar thank you for joining us today thank Thank you you very much for having me and to our audience for tuning in thanks for listening to the definitive wrap with your host bela seabrow Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch the definitive rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.